Okay, so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter number 14. Acts chapter 14, and we've been going through the book of Acts and following the, the beginning and the, the building of the, the church uh, from the time that Christ uh, ascended up into heaven, uh, commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, preaching the gospel to every creature, and now we've seen the, the church grow from just there in Jerusalem going out through all Judea and Samaria, and now we're tracking it into the uttermost parts of the earth. And I've said about every service, I think, that while this is often referred to as Acts of the Apostles, I believe it's more aptly named Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because Christ says, I will build my church, and it is He and His Spirit that builds the church, it's not us. And we are just His body, we are His hands, His feet, His mouth. Uh, we are going out into this world and proclaiming the truth of God's Word. And it is up to God's Spirit to call and to draw people. And we can't save a single person. We can't uh, force anyone to become a Christian. We can't make that happen. It is uh, between the Holy Spirit drawing them, convicting them, and them yielding to His Spirit and trusting Him as their Savior. And so as we've seen this uh, in the past weeks, um, the Gospel has faced opposition. His, God's people has come across persecution and things like that. But the things that Satan means for uh, the detriment of the church, for damage to the church, God actually uses it to grow his church. Even through the opposition, even through the difficulties and the hard times, uh, God is working all these things together for our good and for his glory. And so as the persecution came in Jerusalem, the people fled Jerusalem, carrying the gospel with them into all these other areas. And everywhere they went, they were living out the gospel. They were speaking the gospel and people were believing upon the gospel. And you see churches springing up everywhere. You see these bodies of believers, these congregations of believers who are coming together, uh, bonded by their faith in Christ coming from all ethnicities, from all different strata of society, all of these things coming together into one body in Christ. And so what we looked at last week in Acts 14, we've been following Paul and Barnabas, and we're in what's usually referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, if you look in the back of your Bibles and the maps, anyone ever look at the maps in the back of their Bibles? If you look in the map section, uh, most Bibles will have a map that details Paul's journeys and all the places that he went. Okay, His first journey is pretty small. It goes through the little island there just uh, in that little bend between Israel and uh, the, the region above there in the, Medi I believe it's Mediterranean. He goes through that island and up into the regions of Galatia. And that's where we've been at, the regions of Galatia. And... Uh, one reason I point that out is whenever we read the book of Galatians and the things that's going on there, it was written to these people that we're talking about in this section, okay? It was written some 20, 30 years later, but it was written to the people in this uh, this region here. But anyway, um, so he went through this journey. He went and they lost John Mark. Things got difficult or... Uh, he got homesick, or we don't know, it doesn't say, but for some reason, he turned back. They continued through uh, the dangerous mountain passes and up to this region in Galatia. They went through these different cities, and they had people who were following them, the enemies who did not believe, who rejected. A lot of times they were Jews who did not like seeing the Gentiles 
following God and serving God, they followed Paul and Barnabas, and they kept striking up uh, opposition and blaspheming and false accusations, all of these things against Paul and Barnabas to try to stop the spread of the church. And we see them uh, thrown out of one place and uh, hearing of conspiracies that they're about to be killed in one place, and then they go to the next place, and the people from the previous place follows them to the next place, and finally do do end up stoning them, right? And with Paul and Barnabas, it's it's interesting watching how they're going about because we usually look at it with our modern perspective. We usually look at it with knowing how everything ends up unfolding. We don't realize that they were still step-by-step step feeling this out, trying to figure out which way to go, uh, learning how to follow the Lord, how to minister to people, right? It wasn't just that they were super Christian and had it all down. That they knew exactly what to do. But they're going through and they are having some of the very same struggles and troubles that we still have to this day. We have trouble relating to them as being just like us because we see the fruit of their ministry later on down the line. And something that we fail to understand is a lot of the fruit of what God is doing in our lives now is not going to be seen for years to come. We don't know what God's doing at this moment with the trial that we're going through, with the prayers that we're praying now, with the different circumstances in our lives. We don't know what that's going to bring forth in the future in our lives or even in future generations if the Lord uh, tarries is coming. We don't know what God's going to do through this. But one thing that we do have to understand is that God can't work that work that he desires to do if we quit. And so we find that Paul and Barnabas remained faithful. They continued. And at the end, Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Okay. And so he says, I have stuck it out. I have stayed true. I have followed. Even in later years of his ministry, there are times that he is discouraged, times that he's despairing because he has seen people just like this group that we're looking at uh, in Acts 14, this region of the Galatians, he's writing to them in the book of Galatians because there are false teachers that crept in amongst them and tried to get them to stray away from uh, faith in Christ and go back to works and law-keeping. And so in, in the later end of his life, he's wringing his hands and he's saying, is any of this even going to last? He's afraid that all of the people that uh, he has ministered to, all of the churches that he's planted, all of the work that he's put into it, is going to end up uh, falling to the wayside and that there will be no fruit for his efforts. But even though he went through those thoughts and uh, he struggled with those uh, battles in his mind, we sat here today as beneficiaries of that ministry that he had 2,000 years ago. Because he was the one who took the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, He's the one that wrote about half of the New Testament scriptures. We would have very little understanding of God and his dealings with us in this age if it wasn't for the writings of the Apostle Paul. And so it was essential that he stuck it out, that he remained faithful even through the difficulties, even whenever they were throwing him out of cities and stoning him with stones and leaving him for dead, that he remained faithful. And just looking at how much of a territory that Paul covered... There are many people who believe because 
Paul had a desire to go through the regions of Spain and even through as far as Britain. People believe that Paul may have made it to Spain and Britain. Whenever he said that he finished his course, if his desire was to go through Spain and that was what he was wanting to do, it's very possible that he even carried the gospel all the way over as far uh, west as what we are. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? But even toward the end of his life, he knew I have fought a good fight, I finished my course, I have kept the faith, and he could lay down with peace in the grave and say, God, it's up to you. It wasn't up to Paul to make sure that it lasted. It wasn't up to him to make sure the people stuck with it. He would encourage them, he would minister to them, but he couldn't make anyone uh, follow God faithfully. He couldn't make anyone get saved. He couldn't determine anyone to do anything. But he could determine with himself that he would be doing what was pleasing to God. And so that's what we're seeing in these passages that we're looking at. And really, we're just seeing uh, Paul and Barnabas jump from one place to another place to another place. And so we're kind of covering some some miscellaneous thoughts. Okay, I can't just take one lesson and say, okay, here's the lesson. I guess I could. I could break it down and get a lot more in-depth with it, but your eyes would glaze over you and get bored, okay? You might anyway. But anyway, uh, we're kind of just jumping through some of these, and we are drawing uh, lessons and drawing thoughts from the things that Paul and Barnabas were doing and the things they were experiencing. And so last week what we looked at was God has the ability to direct those who are directable. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And there are many different ways that God directs our steps. We looked at Paul and Barnabas last week, and it wasn't that God appeared to them and gave them a vision. It wasn't that he sent them a map and said, this is the way that I want things to work out. He didn't send them a notification on their phone because they didn't have one. Okay? But he made it clear the way that he would have them to go. He led their feet, even sometimes unwittingly to them. And so as they were in the one city and they heard that there was a, uh, a rising resistance against them that was going to try to kill them, Paul said to Barnabas, we're no good dead. Why don't we just pick up and go to the next town? Right? They said, this door closed. Let's leave. There's no need to, for us to sit here and try to pry it back open. So they left and God opened up another door. They came to the next place. And that's just kind of how it happened. There was different methods that God used. Uh, there were uh, visions that he directed Peter at one point in time and even Paul. But there was many different methods he used. But the main takeaway for us is that if we are willing to be led by God, he has the ability, he has the wisdom to get it through our thick skulls or to get our feet to walk to the right places. Okay, He knows how to make that happen. And the reason I bring that out and stress that so much is that was something that I dealt with a lot uh, not too many years ago because I had a fear that I would miss out on God's plan or God's will. I wanted God's will for my life, but I was scared to death I was going to miss it, that somehow I was going to be too thick for God to get it across to me. But I see all the way through Scripture that God is much greater than my own stupidity. Okay? God is able to get his plan across to me. He's able to put me where he wants me if I'm willing. Okay? So God's able to direct the directable. Uh, we also looked and saw that uh, belief is a matter of will, not of evidence. As Paul and Barnabas was going about, 
They were healing. They were doing miracles. They were working wonders. They were preaching with great power. They were able to go back through the scriptures and through all the prophets and show through God's writings, show through the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And in spite of the mounds of evidence, even miracles and signs and wonders, there were many people who still refused to believe. And to this day, it's not a matter of evidence. It's not a matter of proof. A lot of people say, I want proof. I want evidence. And even if there was enough proof and evidence, they are still going to refuse to believe because it is a matter of will. It is not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of proof. Mm -hmm. We also look at the signs and wonders because uh, that's tends to be a, a hot item of debate today still because we desire to see these signs and wonders. We want things that are miraculous. We want things that are incredible. We want things somehow uh, that's experiential, I guess. I guess it's a good word for it. Yeah, that's a very good word. We want to feel, we want to experience. And Satan knows those desires and he plays into them. Mm-hmm. We can go back to the Garden of Eden. I'll take you there regularly. Okay? <laughs> we go back to the Garden of Eden. I believe that Adam and Eve was already looking at the fruit to begin with. The serpent didn't drag them to the tree and say, hey, come look at this. He was in the tree while they were already there looking at it. And he says, hey, I see something going on already. I see they've already got a desire for something. Let me just push them that direction. And so whenever we have this desire for the experiential, whenever we have the desire for the feels and for all these things, Satan is a supernatural being as well. And he is able to make things happen. And so as we looked at the signs and wonders that Paul and Barnabas were performing, it was to authenticate the message and the messenger. God was doing something new. The Bible was not yet completed. They didn't have the New Testament. And so to authenticate that they were of God, God gave them the signs and the wonders to authenticate the message and the messenger. And I fully believe that the message and the messenger is fully authenticated today. Okay? And for about 2,000 years, well, I'll say 1,800 years, there was very little seen of anything with signs and wonders. And it made a resurgence. We looked at this last week. It made a resurgence around the last century. And people are desiring these things. And I believe that the, the signs, the wonders, the miracles that are being performed today by men, I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles, signs and wonders that's being done by men, are usually done by false teachers, by heretics, by ones that are trying to draw attention to themselves, trying to build their own ministry, and they are doing it not for the sake of the gospel, not to preach the gospel and the truth, but for the sake of the signs and the wonders. And so with that, uh, we know that Satan has the power to perform those, and you look at these things that are being uh, projected as signs and wonders, as miracles today, they do not fit the description of the signs and the wonders and miracles done by Jesus and his apostles. They do not hold up to the quality, to the caliber that you find of their signs, wonders, and miracles. Okay? And the reason for that is they're not of God. Now, as I said, God still does miracles. And we've probably seen some ourselves. But I'm not going to be able to come up here and whack you in the forehead. You flop around on the floor like a fish and call that a miracle. Okay, 
the fourth thing that we uh, looked at last week, run away from any spiritual leader who accepts honor and glory that only God should receive. Whenever they uh, come to Paul and Barnabas and started worshiping them and saying that they were the gods come down from heaven, Paul and Barnabas was quick to refute that and said, we are men just like you don't worship us. And so if there is a man that says, yes, I'm something wonderful, I'm the man of God, I'm supernatural, I'm this or that or the other, come and give me all these gifts and praises. And if he's accepting of that worship, run away from him. He's not of God. And then the last thing that we saw last week, and um, I'm going through the quite in depth with this, but anyway, the last thing that we saw was Satan's followers attack and silence dissenters. Christ did not, and neither should we. And there has been the pattern down throughout history of persecution against God's people, but God's people should never be the persecutors. If people do not believe, if people do not agree, that does not give us place to attack them, that we are to be as Christ and uh, love all men, seek the salvation of all men. And the Bible tells us very clearly that our enemy is not flesh and blood. And so if we are attacking other men just because they don't believe like we do, we are not following Christ's example, but we're following Satan's. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so that was the last thing we looked at. So this week what we're going to be uh, doing, we're going to pick up where uh, Paul and Barnabas are facing this crowd at Lystra, or Lystra, however you say it. And they have confronted them for... Uh, trying to worship them so that we are men of like, uh, we're men just like you are. And they preach to them, not the gospel. They don't even get a chance to preach the gospel, but they are reproving them for their idolatry. They're saying the religion that you have is not of God. And so that would have stung them a little bit. And these guys from the other cities that have been following them around come and incite. The people are already in this uh, I guess, festival-type atmosphere. They were wanting to worship, and if they can't worship, uh, why waste a, a good frenzy, I guess? Okay, Rather than having this big party to worship, now they're going to have this big party to kill. And so they stone Paul and leave him for dead. And so we're going to pick that up in verse number 19. It says, And there came that there's certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, so they followed him for a long ways, who persuaded the people and having, having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to uh, uh, Adelia or something like that. And then uh, sailed to Antioch. And from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which was or which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles 
and there they abode long time with the disciples. And so we started out this passage today seeing Paul carted out of the city by these people who, for no reason whatsoever, uh, hated Paul and desired to see him dead. He came preaching a message, and you, you all probably heard since the, the time that you were young, sticks and stones may break my bones, words will never hurt me. Mm-hmm. You all heard that? Some of you? But anyway, all Paul was doing was coming and preaching a different message than what they had heard. They, he was proclaiming something that they didn't believe, and they had determined that that was the impardonable sin for them. And so they decided that Paul had to die for this. And so they took him outside the city, they stoned him with stones, and they supposed that he was dead. Now, this was most likely Jews that stoned him because stoning was the preferred method of execution for the Jews. Each nationality had their own methods of execution. Romans, of course, liked the cross. But the Jews liked stoning them. And so most likely this was Jews that had stoned them, saw them as blasphemers, saw them as uh, reprobate in whatever way because they had departed from their faith and decided to kill them. And so if you put yourself in Paul's position here, he is doing the work of God. He is simply in love, reaching out, preaching and proclaiming, desiring the salvation of the souls of these people. As he is pleading with them in the verses previous to what we read, he is telling them you are following after vain idols. You are following after religion that can do nothing for you, and you need to turn to the true and living God. That was his desire for them. And as a reward for his desire, for his love toward them, for his preaching the truth to them, they pelted him with rocks until they thought he was dead. If you were Paul, what would your response be? I mean, after it. <laughs> what? Forget them, right? Forget them. <laughs> but yeah, if, if you would have went through that kind of treatment, if those people would have done that to you, if they would have done it to me, you would have been angry. You would have been vengeful. You would have said, God, call down fire from heaven and burn them alive. Right? Right. We are quick to cut people off, right? And so, anyway, I don't know if we, I don't know that I can say that people's done. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay, you're, I have to get my thoughts right here. Okay. But anyway, yeah, we, we cut people off for a lot less than stoning. Right. I've never even came close to that kind of persecution. Most of us probably have never really been persecuted. You may have been called a name. Oh, persecution. No. (laughs) But anyway, if we would face this, most likely we would have said, forget them. And it may even go even further. We may have looked at God and said, God, I'm just trying to serve you. How could you let this happen to me? I'm done. Forget this. If I'm going to be constantly chased and constantly uh, insulted and constantly abused, I want no part of this. Paul could have went back to tent making, right? He could have went back and said, okay, I'm done. Peter at one point in time said, I go fishing. Paul could have said, I go tent making. He could have left it. He could have said, if this is the way the Gentiles are doing, well, it wasn't Gentiles, it was Jews, right? He could have said, I'm done with it. But in this passage, I want want you to see God's care for his people. You say, well, God didn't care for Paul very well right there, did he? 
But what did God do through this circumstance? What did God do through Paul being pelted with stones until they thought he was dead? For one thing, we see a miracle that is done in Paul's life because, get this, if he was stoned to the place that they thought he was dead, he was in bad shape. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Some people actually believe, and it, it may be so, that Paul died here and experienced a resurrection. Even some of the language that's in this passage is used in other places to refer to miracles and to resurrections. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so Paul may have actually died, but as everyone was gathered around him, encircling him, mourning over him, guarding his body so that it's like you've done enough, leave him alone, that Paul just rises up and goes back into the city. I mean, he was under a pile of stones, and then, you know, the stones start moving maybe. I don't know, you, I, I don't know how much of Paul you could have seen. Like, oh, his foot's moving. And he just shakes the stones off, rises up, and says, okay, boys, let's go back to town goes back into the town to the people that just stoned him. Okay, so let's we're, we're putting ourselves back in that position. We were looking at it from if we were Paul, right? Now put yourself in the position of the townspeople that stoned him. They just threw rocks at him. They know that he was at least close to dead, and now he's walking back into town. Right? I'm going to mess up with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And so he walks back into town, and they're like, okay, here he comes, let's stone him again. They're probably giving him wide berth. They're like, get away from him, leave him alone. There's something weird about this guy. Yeah. Okay? And he sleeps that night, and the next day, they go off to Derby. That was about a 29-kilometer or yeah, 29 kilometer journey. So they just covered you with stones until you were almost dead, or that you might have actually been dead. And the next day, you decide to take a walk for 30 kilometers. God was doing a work in Paul's life, and Paul was realizing that, yes, there may be bad things that happen, but God has got me through these bad things, and even if there's something that I think almost killed me, or that's going to kill me, that God is still with me, and if I'm serving him, nothing can happen to me unless God allows it. I'm here just as long as God wants me here. And this would have been a huge lesson for Paul, because this was early in his ministry, and he's looking at this and saying, essentially, I am unkillable until God allows me to be killed. And you think about some of the other things that he goes through, all the times of imprisonment, the times that he was shipwrecked. I don't think anyone would want to be on a boat with Paul. Because every time he got on a boat, it sunk, but he lived. Right? He was beat. He was snake bit. He had all kinds of things happen to him. And he said, until God is done with me, there is nothing that man can do to me. Right. Could you imagine that? how that would strengthen his faith? He's like, yeah, that was unpleasant. But through it, I saw the power of God in my life. And I think we can look back at a lot of our things in our lives that's a lot less bad than stoning and say, yes, that was unpleasant. But through it, I saw God working in my life. Exactly. Through it, it increased my faith. Through it, it made me stronger. Not only did it increase Paul's faith, but it also increased the faith of the saints. Because there were people there who had believed. We often focus on all of the unbelievers, but there were folks there who had believed the gospel. And if Paul would have stayed dead, if God wouldn't have done this miracle in Paul's life, then these people would have probably been silenced right then. Right? 
If Paul wouldn't have ever faced the stoning, maybe they wouldn't have the faith that they did have so that they could endure the things that they would uh, go through so that they could continue unto, uh, not necessarily unto this day, but they could continue and make a difference in that region. And so it strengthened their faith. We find later on that one of the people that come from the, the town of Lystra, anyone know? Timothy. And so Timothy, that would eventually be Paul's closest companion, his protege, the one that Paul was going to disciple and was going to be leaving in charge of all these works that he started. It was going to be one of his closest friends was one of the ones that was from that city and most likely was one of the ones was in that circle around Paul and watched him rise up. And so whenever Paul comes back around on his second missionary journey, he's introduced to Timothy and they commend Timothy to him and say, hey, this man really has a desire to serve God and I think he would be a help to your ministry. Can you take him under your wing? And Paul says, yeah, sure, I'll take him under my wing. And it develops that that close relationship that we see between Paul and Timothy. And that started with Paul being stoned in Lystra. Imagine how much different the story would have been if Paul would have quit there. Right? And so it made a difference in Paul. It made a difference in the believers. It also made a difference in the opposition because we don't find them messing with him anymore. He comes back to the city. They don't try to kill him again. He moves on, and then whenever he comes back through again, now that that's something, right? He leaves the city the next day. He goes forth to Derby, and then in the passage that we read, he circles back through all of these cities that he has previously been thrown out of, and they don't throw him out again. It had an effect on his opposition. It silenced the opposition. They were afraid to mess with him. I can just imagine the ripples going through town as Paul approaches the city and says, yeah, you know that preacher that we tried to kill? He's coming back again. He's like a cockroach. He won't die. Okay? And so they would leave him alone in it. So this, this fame of him would have went out throughout the region so that even those who opposed him and opposed Christ would still have to, uh, I guess, check themselves a little bit before they would mess with him. And it would have encouraged all of these people. It would have given them comfort. They would have reaped the benefits, right? So these new believers that Paul is leaving behind, the fact that he was martyred, basically, and resurrected before all of the opponents, uh, it was going to give them a little extra breathing room. Would that be a good way to say it? A little extra breathing room as they are growing just newborn babes in Christ as they are growing, that these men are going to leave them alone so that they can grow. And so God cares for his people, and what we think is a curse could actually be a blessing. God can do great things even through the difficulties and the bad things in our lives. Second thing I see in this passage is don't stop because of difficulty. We've already kind of covered this a little bit, but don't stop because of difficulty. It's all part of the process. If you look in verse number 22, it says that Paul's coming back through all these places and it says, confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. So exhorting, he's encouraging them. He's 
trying to uh, impress upon them the importance of continuing, of remaining faithful, because it is going to get difficult. Exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that the going through the tribulation and enduring the tribulation is going to cause them to be saved, but it's going to be part of that process of God working and building his kingdom. Tribulation is going to come. And this goes, it flies in the face of much of the false teaching of today of health, wealth, and prosperity. If you're following God, your life is just going to fall into place. It's going to be smooth sailing. It's going to be easy. Paul says, no, if you're going to follow God, if you're going to see him ruling his kingdom in your life, then there is going to be opposition. There is going to be tribulation because we're on enemy territory. This is not... This is not heaven. This is not God's kingdom. God's people on this earth are part of God's kingdom, but the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world, that he is the prince and the power of the air. We are on uh, enemy territory, and as long as we're here, there will be opposition. And he is going to raise opposition through friends, through family, through community, through different uh, religious groups, through government, through everything around us. There will be opposition that he rises against us because Satan is not glad that the gospel goes out. He is not glad that Christians are living for God. And so there will be opposition. And so we can't stop because of the difficulty. And if we do stop when things get difficult, we are not going to see the blessings that God is bringing about through those difficulties. It is through those difficulties that our faith is made strong. It's through those troubles and tribulations that we are uh, drawn closer to God, that we are made to cast ourselves upon him. If we went throughout this life on this earth and never had an issue, never had a problem, and everything was clear skies and smooth sailing, we would never turn to God. We can see that illustrated all throughout the Old Testament. Every time that God blessed and gave the Israelites ease, they turned from him. We can see that in our modern generation, our current generation, that in the Western world, we have ease. We have all of the things that we need. We have, for the most part, an easy life. Right. And you might say, well, my life's not that easy. Compare it with some of these other guys. You have food. You have clothing. You have shelter. You have relative uh, safety. We have peace. We have a good life. And so through that, we are able of our own ability, of our own power, or at least we think, to provide for ourselves, to live in comfort, and many people today might claim the name of Christ. We were talking about nominal Christians before church, okay? There are many people who claim the name of Christ, never follow him because their life is easy enough that they have never had to seek after him and throw themselves up on his mercies and to seek his power and his ability to get them through the difficulties. And so whenever you go through difficulties, don't stop. It's part of the process. Um, a third thing that I want to bring out of this passage is don't miss the good because of the bad. Exactly. Don't miss the good because of the bad. As we go throughout life, our focus is on the negative, yeah. right? By and large, most of us, it is the negatives that, that stick out to us. <laughs> you can even look back over your life, and most of your memories that stick with you the most are not the happy ones. They're the negative ones, right? And you can go throughout this day even. You can go throughout this day 
And you can have a multitude of blessings come to you throughout this day, but what is it that you're going to remember at the end of the day? I will still remember the good things. If because you, I'm praying. Mm -hmm. I'm thanking for that. Right. That's what we need to do. But in general with humanity, I mean, you can have great things happening in your life. Your family can be healthy. You can uh, be going along. Your job's going well. All of your needs are met. But it rained today. <laughs> you know, you can have all the good things going and it's a negative thing that you see. Okay? Got a great meal ahead of me. You know, I've got this before me, but the meat wasn't cooked the way I like it. I mean, that's a silly example, but isn't that the way that we do? We, we focus on the negative instead of on the positive. And we can have all these different things going in our lives. We focus on the negative. The reason I bring it out in this passage is we focus on the negative in this passage. We're seeing the opposition. We're seeing Paul Stone. We're seeing uh, the people who refuse to believe and who reject. And we rarely ever pay attention to the ones who do believe. It says that there was a great number who believed. There were multitudes who believed. There were many people who believed. There was Timothy who believed. And we don't pay any attention to that. And if Paul would have focused only on the critics, if he would have focused only on the difficulties and the hardships, he would have missed out on all of the blessings that came. He would have missed out on all of the good that came to him through those events. He could have moved on and he'd say, man, Lystra, it was a complete failure. That was a mess back there. Barnabas, you remember how they treated us there? And Barnabas being the encourager. But Paul, do you realize how many people came to Christ there? Do you realize there is a church that's now there that is going out and evangelizing all that region that people are getting saved and that there's going to be a multitude of people up in heaven that wouldn't have been there if you wouldn't have went through that? Don't miss out on the blessings just because of the difficulties that you go through. Don't miss out on the good because of the bad that comes along. And I believe part of the, the key to this is knowing our God, okay? Even the, in the, the much-quoted verse, Romans eight twenty eight, we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them that are called according to His purpose, right? We can quote that. We can... Uh, it, it's almost become, it's lost its effectiveness in our minds because of how often that we've heard it. But whenever we realize how good our God is, we can take our eyes off of the bad and we can wait for God to bring about the good. Yeah. We serve a good God. We serve a God who is able that even through the difficulties, even through the hardships, even through the dark times, he is still able to shine light through that. He's still able to bring good things through that. And so even whenever we don't see the good, we can just wait and know that it's around the corner. One of the greatest examples of that in Scripture is that of Joseph. Right? Remember the story of Joseph? He sold into slavery. That's bad. Okay? And as a slave, he gets in Potiphar's house. He say, oh, things work out well in Potiphar's house. He was still a slave. We miss out on that part. Then he was lied about. He was in prison. 
He saw a glimmer of hope, thinking that maybe the butler or the, the baker was going to, to give a good word to the, the Pharaoh and get him out of prison, and he was forgotten about. All of these things that he went through, bad, 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 bad. But God worked all those things together for his good. And at the end, he was essentially the prime minister of Egypt. I don't know of too many people that that has been their route to success in this world in politics. Okay? I was a slave. I was falsely accused. I was imprisoned. I went through all these things. And then all of a sudden... I woke up one day and everything changed and I was exalted to the throne. That's the kind of God that we serve, that he can take the rain and cause the flowers to grow, right? That he can take the dark times and make the, the days and the light that much brighter. And so that's what he did with, uh, that's what he did with Joseph. And Joseph's not the only one. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but if we look at Moses, Moses' very start, he was uh, sentenced to death from the time that he was born. Y'all realize that? The edict from the, the ruler at that time, the edict from Pharaoh, was every male child is to be fed to the crocodiles in the Nile River. And so just his birth into this world was rough. His mom hit him for a while. She could no longer hide him. Said, well, I'm required to throw him in the river, but nothing says that he can't be in a boat when he goes. She puts him in a boat. Just so happens, Pharaoh's daughter picks him up and he is raised in Pharaoh's house, but he is raised in Pharaoh's house by his Jewish mama. Because God. He comes, comes of age and he says, I want to go out and see how things are going with my my brethren, the Jews, sees him being mistreated, and he says, I'm going to do something about it. And he kills a man. Comes out the next day, and they said, oh, you want to kill me like you did that guy yesterday? He says, oh, no, they know about it. And he runs and hides, and he says, oh, my life's over. I'm now on the backside of the, the desert here in Midian. God can't use me. God can't do anything with me. He gets a wife. Spends 40 years in the desert and he thinks that's the way his life's going to go and all of a sudden there's a burning bush. Right? In the next 40 years of his life, change, Moses' life is broke up in 40-year increments. The palace, the desert, and the wilderness. Right? And so in each of these steps, we can see that there was bad, but God was working good. And he does that in our lives as well. And it's not just people like Joseph and Moses and Daniel, but it's all of us as well. We serve the same God. Next thing that we see in this is whenever we receive good, whenever we are blessed of God, whenever we see God working in our midst, what we should be doing is proclaiming God's blessings to encourage others. In this passage that we read, Whenever all this is done, Paul Barnabas comes back through uh, confirming the churches and encouraging the people and doing all these things. And then they go back and they report to Antioch. Did you catch that in verse 27? When they were come, they had gathered the church together. They rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. 
So they came back into town. Antioch had sent them out, said, go out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Go out and proclaim the gospel to these people. And Paul and Barnabas comes through the doors of Antioch and says, hey, guys, you're not going to believe what God has done. And they lay it all out and say, you know what? There is a church now in Lystra and one in Derby and one over in Antioch and Pisidia and all these different places. There are Gentiles all over that have believed the gospel. There are multitudes that have gotten saved because of this. And they're telling about different stories, about different people. And they're reporting all of these things. And the people at Antioch would have been so encouraged by this as seeing the gospel go out, seeing the family of God increase. And so whenever God blesses us, we shouldn't keep it to ourselves. We should, first of all, we need to thank God and praise him for what he has done. But we need to share those blessings with other people because of the encouragement that it is. Whenever you are able, it's not that you're rubbing it in their face or that you're bragging about it to them, but you are showing them what God can do. And whenever people say God's working in their life, and yeah, I might be in a difficult place, but God can do the same for me. And so we proclaim God's blessings to encourage others. And so now all these things that we looked at so far was kind of personal in nature, but I want to look at their ministry through this as well and see the different things that they've done as ministry in this passage, okay? We find one important thing is that believers need discipleship and encouragement. In verse number 22, it says that they were confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. So as they went from place to place, they didn't say, okay, you believed and we're done with you. We're going on. Forget about you. We're done with you. We've done our part and we're moving on. But Paul still had this uh, burning desire, this care for all these people to see them continue, to see them build up, to see them edified in the faith because here's the fact of the matter. We need constant encouragement. We need constant discipleship. We need growth. That's one reason we come together as Christians is to encourage one another, to grow, to learn. But it's not just at church, but also in our day-to-day lives to have fellow believers that we can encourage one another because we need this constant discipleship. We need this constant encouragement. And Paul knew that was the case. And so everywhere he went, he went back to again. We find on the second missionary journey, he goes through the same region again. That was Paul and Barnabas' thing. They said, okay, we've been back here in Antioch for a while. Let's go back and check on all of these believers that we met before, all of these believers that in these churches that we started. Let's go see how they're doing. Now, the fallout between Paul and Barnabas, we'll get to it later. Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and Paul says, no, nope, not doing that again. But they're going back through and checking up on all these people to continue encouraging them and continue uh, discipling them so that they grow in the faith, they continue in the faith. Because if we are left to ourselves, if we are disconnected from these forms of encouragement and discipleship, we are going to wither up. We are going to drift away from God. We need this fellowship. We need this community. There is a, a growing movement today of people who think I can serve God by myself. I don't need the church. I don't need other believers. I can I can meet with God in my bedroom. I can meet with him out in the, the field or on that, whatever. There's a side, yes, you can. But you also need the body. You also need the church. You also need other believers because left to yourself, you will uh, shrivel up. 
just as an example, you have the, the prime example of Elijah in the Old Testament. It wasn't that he intentionally isolated himself, but in the place that he lived, there wasn't a whole lot of other people serving God. We can kind of identify with that a little bit, right? But in the place that he was, he says, I'm the only one left. I can't find anybody else who is serving God. And he got extremely discouraged and depressed. He was ready to quit, right? We need other people. And so God provided him with another person and said, Elijah, it's not good for you to be alone either. So why don't you go out and find Elisha? And Elisha came alongside of him, right? So believers need discipleship and they need encouragement. Uh, the church needs leadership. And this is something that's interesting to me. In verse 23, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So they had went through, they preached the gospel, people believed, they moved on to the next cities, preached the gospel, they believed, preached the gospel, they believed, and then they backtracked. They went back through the same cities again, encouraging them, confirming them, discipling them a little bit. And they were going to leave and go onward, but they didn't want to leave them as sheep without a shepherd. And so they were confirming elders, but this is where it gets interesting for me. Okay? How long has these, how long has these people been saved? I mean, I don't have a number to give you, but it was a short time, right? Just long enough for them to go through the region and then circle back through the region. So these believers hadn't been saved for very long, but there were ones who, even in that amount of time, uh, had the gifts and the abilities of God so that they were able to care for the flock, to shepherd the flock. We have kind of a, a, weird, a weird concept today, a foreign concept to the Scripture of how this is supposed to work, that a pastor is someone who has went through seminaries, been trained up all these years and everything that comes from far away to, to come in to preach to us every week. <laughs> right? But we find that in the early church that the pastors, that the, the, the shepherds, the elders of the church come from amongst them and they were caring for one another. It didn't require advanced degrees and all these different things, but it required a walk with God. It required the giftings of, of the Holy Spirit and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And these people were able to grow and able to shepherd the sheep. See, God is able to give each church what they need. He's able to do that. But I think in their mindset today, uh, no one ever even considers the, the idea that maybe God could use them in that way. Mm -hmm. Most people never even uh, contemplate the idea of, does God want me to be a shepherd to a sheep? Does God want me to be caring for others? Because we always see ministry as being something someone else does. Mm -hmm. We tend to believe that it's something that we receive, not something that we do. But in the early church, they ministered one to another. It wasn't the pastor was up here and the sheep were down here. But the pastor was amongst the sheep and the sheep were ministering to one another. The pastor was ministering and somebody had to be leading. Somebody had to be in charge. But it wasn't this idea of church as we often see it today. I find that interesting. And so these people hadn't been saved very long, but they had the Holy Spirit. 
They had uh, the giftings that God had given them, and they were able to help lead and encourage and feed the sheep. I think oftentimes uh, the way that it would have went within these churches is that the pastor grew with the congregation, right? And whether you all understand this or not, the same thing's happening here as well because I've never pastored until here. You all come and you say, oh, he knows what he's doing. No, he doesn't. I'm growing with the congregation. I'm, I am uh, trying to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to, to seek after God as I'm trying to feed his sheep and do these things. But it's not that I'm just a professional that came in and took over. I'm, I'm a sheep that became a shepherd. Okay? And that's the way that it's intended to be, I believe. But don't think that I've got it all figured out. I'm growing along with you. And that's the way that it was supposed to be. So the church needs leadership. Uh, we all need God's power and guidance, something that we see here in verse 23, when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting. This idea of prayer and fasting, it is a, uh, an act of faith and dependence on God. Okay, Prayer is us calling out to God and saying, God, we need you. We need your help. We can't do this without you. Fasting is depriving our our body so that we can pursue things that are spiritual, okay? Fasting is not often taught on, not often talked about today, because unfortunately it seems like it's almost got this idea that it's some sort of a magic formula or some kind of weird thing that we do. But all that fasting is is saying, I'm going to deprive this flesh. This flesh isn't what is in control. This flesh isn't what is uh, in charge of my life. I'm going to put the flesh in its place so that I'm able to uh, pursue spiritual endeavors. Okay? Does that make sense? Because for most of us, our flesh is the one that's calling the shots. Okay? Uh, you'll drop everything whenever your body decides that it's a little bit hungry. The first sign of your, your stomach ground a little bit, oh, I've got to eat. My flesh is demanding me. Right? When we're talking about fasting, it's like flesh, I don't care about you. One of these days you're going to rot, the worms are going to eat you. I need to care about my soul and my spirit. Right? So, anyway, the reason I brought all that out is this was new believers. It was a very newly formed church. They were needing leadership within that church, they were needing God to work in their midst. And so they were dependent upon God. They needed his power. They needed his guidance. And if they were choosing out who was going to be the pastor of these new churches amongst a bunch of new Christians, they really needed God's guidance. It's like, okay, God, which one of these novices should we put over us? And God directed, God guided, and God chose his man for the church, and he blessed those things. And it's not just whenever we're making big decisions like that. But we need God's power and his guidance in everyday life. We need to constantly be going to him and seeking after him. We need to have a daily walk with God where we're in his word, where we're going to him in prayer, and we are seeking his will and his guidance, his hand, his blessing in our lives. Because the moment that you think that you've got it figured out and that you're the one that's in control, you're a mess. Okay, You need God for every step of the way. Fourth thing that we see in this, as far as the ministry goes, is the Lord is able to guide and to grow his church. Uh, I imagine with Paul, he's like, okay, these guys 
are all completely new. They're all novices. We're getting ready to leave this new church in the hands of a new pastor that has not very much experience, and we would be tempted to fret and to worry over that, right? But in verse 23, at the end of it, it says, they commended them unto the Lord on whom they believed. Paul said, God, it's your children. God, it's your church. You're able to grow it. You're able to guide it. You're able to do what needs to be done there. And so as Paul went on, he didn't have to worry and fret and you know, sit biting nails. And, uh, what's going to happen over in Leicester? What's going to happen in Derby? Because they could put it in God's hands because it wasn't Paul that was going to keep it going. It wasn't Paul that was going to cause it to be successful or grow. It was God that would do that. And the reason why that is so important for us today is that oftentimes we think it is our responsibility to make sure that other people are where we think they should be. I've seen this happen in churches where the pastor thought it was his job to be the Holy Spirit to the people in the pews. And that is a mantle that we can't take on. That is something that we can't handle because we are not the Holy Spirit. We don't have, we've got enough problems just trying to take care of ourselves, let alone trying to micromanage every person within the church. And so Paul gives us a great example here as they commend them to the Lord. He said, God, these are your sheep. And there's been many times that I've prayed and I've said, God, I know you love them more than I do. God, you take care of this. God, you intervene in this because I am not able to, but you are. Commend them to the Lord. And then the final two things that we see here, they return to Antioch that sent them out. Verse 27, when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. So they come back to the church that sent them out. Antioch said, go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Go on our behalf. And Paul and Barnabas comes back and they are accountable to the ones that sent them. They're accountable to them. They're giving a, a report on their ministry, so to speak. And so even to this day, for me, I, I've got churches in the United States supporting me that's uh, enabling me to be here. I'm accountable to them. I send back letters to them. I tell them what I'm doing here and what, what all's going on, give reports and things of like that. Because they have sent me and I'm accountable to them. But on the inverse of that, in verse 20, and there they abode a long time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch They've been on a long trip. They have covered many kilometers. They have been beat. They've been bruised. They've been abused. They've seen great blessings. And now they need a season of rest. And so now the ones that sent them out are providing refreshment to them. They're able to sit there in amongst the church and minister and be ministered to and be refreshed and be prepared to go out another time. And so bringing it to a, a local level here, bringing it to us, we go out into this world each, each day, each week. We go out and we're trying to be a light and try to be a witness in the world which we live in. We're trying to share the gospel with those that are around. Whenever we have conversations, whenever we talk to people, whenever we are seeing God working, we report it back here and we're talking and saying, hey, guess what God is doing? We're, we're telling there just a little bit about uh, things that, uh, prayers that God was answering in our lives and uh, people that God was uh, moving in their lives, things like that. And we come in, we tell you guys about it. I know Anna, she's not here today, but 
Anna has come and told us about things that are going on with some of her friends and coworkers and people she's trying to be a witness to. And she comes in and reports that back to us and we're encouraging one another, right? And then hopefully as we're getting around one another, we're energizing and restoring one another as well. And we're coming here to refuel. We're coming here to rest. And I want this to be a place of encouragement. I want this to be a place where we can come together and we're not worried about what one another is doing. We're not worried about, uh, you know, judging and comparing and examining and being critical and everything, but where we can come in, we can be real, we can be ourselves, and we can just come out from the world and take a break. This should be a safe haven, right? That's what this should be. We're out in the muck and the mire of the world all week long. And whenever we come here as believers, we should be able to be refreshed by one another, be encouraged by one another, and just focus on the things of God for just a little while. And this should be just maybe a little foretaste, a little uh, a little slice of heaven before we get there. Right. And maybe listening to me doesn't constitute that. I don't know. <laughs> maybe you get your best naps at church. I'm not sure. But you got to rest one way or the other. But anyway. <laughs> but anyway. So that's the things that we've looked at today. So Paul and Barnabas, they went through a lot, but... God was doing a lot of good in spite of the bad, and they were giving us a good example of how we are supposed to function even to this day as believers, relating to one another and carrying out the ministry that God has given us. So does anyone have any questions or any comments what we've looked at this morning? Nothing? Okay, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take a, a short break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you so much for the, the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the, the great truths that we see in it and how uh, real Christianity is displayed on every page. We thank you, Lord, for these men that we, we often lift them up in high regard, but we see that as they went through their day-to-day lives, Lord, that they weren't all that much different than us, that they had the same struggles, the same difficulties and things. I know we've never been stoned, but uh, but Lord, we know that uh, these things are relatable to us and we can draw encouragement and strength from it. Help us, Lord, to take these examples and apply them to our lives. And Lord, I just pray do what's needed in the heart and lives of each person that's here today. Thank you so much for all that you do. And all we pray in Jesus' name and amen.